Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello and welcome to The Last Word, the first last word of the semester. <laughs> first last. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm your host today and I'm Cam and I've got Johnny on the podcast with me. Hey yo. Hey, yo. And I've got JD on the podcast with me. So good to be back. It is so good to be back. I'm so excited to jump into today's episode and kind of go into what we're going to be talking about this semester. And we just had our first crosstalk going into a series on Genesis. So JD, I wanted you to kind of explain your heart behind wanting to do Genesis and kind of your desire behind wanting to teach it to college students and give them this foundation of it. Absolutely. I think that Genesis is the most crucial book for us to understand if we're going to approach the biblical narrative. Uh, We really can't understand the power and the importance of the gospel message in Jesus Christ without Mm -hmm. Genesis. Because without the beginning, we don't know why we need Jesus, right? And so when we look Mm -hmm. at the story of Genesis, we're looking at really the story of how humanity was created and how we chose something other than what God designed for us. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the biblical narrative then, and and really our lives are this story of being restored back to right relationship with God. And we oftentimes do that in a variety of different ways, (laughs) trying Mm -hmm. to be good enough, trying to earn our way, all of these sorts of things. And the Israelites did the same thing. And so when we understand Genesis, we both understand the story of Israel and we understand ourselves. And that puts us in a position to understand our great need for the person and the work of Jesus. Yeah. Mm. That is fire, JD. I am so excited for this. I don't know about y'all, but Genesis is the book that I've read the most, Mm -hmm. like frequently out of the Bible. And I don't know if it's because I keep trying the Bible in a year type of plan or if I just (laughs) enjoy it so much. Yeah, (laughs) always get through Genesis and there it is. Um, But I love all the stories in it. It has so much just like fun topics in it. And we're doing the whole thing in what, three chapters, the first three chapters? First three chapters. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really the crucial part for us to understand. Of course, like the rest of the book of Genesis, we get the story of the patriarchs, we get the story Mm -hmm. of the Exodus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, really Exodus, you get the story of the Exodus, but you get Noah and the flood, (laughs) you get Abraham and all of these things that really set us up to understand everything else that follows after that. And I think you're so right, man. Like most of us, when we started reading the Bible for the first time, tried a Bible in a year plan, we got through Genesis, (laughs) we maybe got through Exodus, and And then we hit Leviticus Leviticus and Numbers, and that's where most of us quit. Or some of us, I know I quit at points in time, even just reading the book of Genesis because it becomes very difficult to understand. It's it's deep and it can be very confusing. And so we really want to spend a lot of time dwelling in this. We understand the key foundational theological truths here so that we can approach the rest of the narrative and understand the basis from which we are reading and working from. Yeah, I'm excited for people to see that God's word isn't a list of do's and don'ts and it's not this rule book where God is just waiting to pull the rug out from under us, but it's a redemptive love story that changes every part of our lives. And so I'm excited for people who are just like hearing and reading Genesis for the first time with us to experience that. Um, And so we know that in Genesis 1, 27, it says that God created mankind in his image. And so how do you guys think that having this perspective and this foundation really does change the way that we see every 
part of our lives from here on out going forward. Oh my gosh. I think that it changes things in dramatic ways, even far beyond what we have time for this morning. But I think (laughs) primarily (laughs) it impacts the way in which we view ourselves. Mm -hmm. And when God in the Ten Commandments says, don't make any idols, he doesn't, he says, don't make any idols because I've already created you in my image. Mm -hmm. You are defiling my image in you when you worship something other than me. And so we see that, and that applies to how we personally interact with the world around us, the habits that we choose that really form us, the things that we worship. And then secondarily to that, wow, does it change the way in which we view and treat other people? Mm -hmm. Because if every person is created in the image of God, then that has to be at the forefront of our minds when we consider how do we treat them? How do we love them? How do we care for them? How do we fight for justice for them mm-hmm. because they too are image bearers of the most high God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so good. good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's going to be my favorite message um, coming up in Genesis. And whenever I'm talking to so many people in college and just myself, all the conflicts I see almost feel like they fall under this topic of that hey, we are created in God's image and we just need to come back to that no matter what the conflict is on how we view ourselves or how we view others or how we feel like others view us. And so I'm very excited that I think it is one of those foundational um, discussions that we get to have. Yeah, it's really mind-blowing thinking about how much our lives would change if we really just let that sink in on our hearts and even in the ways that we don't think about how it affects us. And even like as, as believers who have like read Genesis like many times, this is something for every single person because we know that God's Word is meant to be read over and over mm-hmm. again and to mm-hmm. let it sink in. It's not just like, oh, I know it. It's in my head, one and done, but really letting it sink in on every part of our lives. And super incredible, and I'm super excited to see what God does through that. But um What do you hope, J.D., is the absolute biggest takeaway from going through Genesis for these college students? Oh, my gosh. I think it's this understanding of these foundational truths that that God created, that that the world did not happen by some grand cosmic accident, but there is an author and a creator to this world that he Mm -hmm. ordered and gave it form, that then we see that it was created good. It was intended to be good. And we as human beings especially are very good. Mm-hmm. And we're very good. And this fights against this very pessimistic worldview that we we are what's wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have heard that. I think that that's oftentimes... Times. Yeah, it's like human <laughs> beings are what's wrong. It's like, that's not what God intended. We were created yeah. good. And we're created in his, in his image. That we are... That every human life has inherent value. And then we see that gender is a part of this created reality, that God created us male and female, and this expression of gender is not some narrow-minded viewpoint, but it's Mm -hmm. a way in which we reflect the image of God Mm -hmm. through our gender and through the way that we honor the way that God created us to be. And then lastly, we encounter this problem of human brokenness that pervades every aspect of our life, and we interact with it each and every day. And when we come to terms with this brokenness, then we see our our need for a Savior. Mm -hmm. We have a need for a Savior that we can't accomplish on our own. And so I really think that when we embody and we understand these key foundational truths, we have 
the ability to understand both who we are and who God is and ultimately what he has done mm-hmm. through the person of Jesus to draw us back to right relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Gosh, JD, you just made me so hype <laughs> to hear your messages this semester. Okay, well, I'm super stoked to hear all that. And for me, I think that we're gonna get a bigger perspective using these like foundational mm-hmm. beliefs um, on that like, hey, yeah, God is the creator. And whether we like it or not, like that's just the truth that we live in. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows us our purpose a little more. Yeah, and so good. I'm just, I'm excited to get that perspective through mm-hmm. the messages that you're gonna give. I'm so stoked. Yeah, and I think that in a very important way, this does bring up and it has to be acknowledged how many questions this brings up for us. Yeah. Like when we yeah. when we look at all of the really difficult to answer questions that are uh, really out there in the world around us, we oftentimes have no uh, anchor to mm-hmm. begin to answer and to think about those things. Mm-hmm. And I think the beautiful part about the first three chapters in the book of Genesis is that it gives us these key foundational truths and then allows us to develop our personal convictions about what it means to live in light of those truths. Mm -hmm. And we see that there isn't just one way of looking at these issues we mm-hmm. or answering these questions, but we really get to begin to to dialogue and to ask questions and to find some answers and some truth mm-hmm. in dealing mm-hmm. with those hard to answer things. And ultimately that helps to form our biblical worldview in a really powerful and important way as we understand our own theology, our own foundational belief system because that allows us to go back out into the world and live secure mm-hmm. in what we believe and who we are as people. Let's mm-hmm. go. Cool. Yeah, I'm so thankful to be part of a community who invites questions and invites the hard conversations, oh, yeah. Yeah. just like the mm-hmm. Lord allows it with us. And I'm excited to see how not only we grow, but also getting to watch other community group leaders grow and mm-hmm. all of Crosstalk and whoever God brings into Crosstalk this semester. It's so gonna be good. amazing. I'm it's ready for it. Really, really good, yeah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, you guys can look forward really here in this next week. We're going to talk about God as the creator. We'll talk about what it means that God created. And we'll get into uh, like some of the weeds in terms of what that looks like and and how we apply that to our lives. But I think what's going to be really cool is for us to to rest on this foundational truth that, yeah, the universe isn't an accident, that God Mm -hmm. created on purpose and for a purpose. And that purpose was ultimately for human thriving. Mm-hmm. He calls us to be fruitful and to multiply. And so, and to have dominion and exercise uh, our ability to steward this creation that he has created. And so that that really um, creates more for us in terms of how we view how we're supposed to uh, take care of this created world yeah. that we live in. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's going to about wrap it up mm-hmm. for today. Um, and then uh, next Thursday, um, Crosstalk. And we're so excited for the semester to wrap anything up. Anything you want to add, JD? Nope, that's just it? about it. I'm excited to see what God does through this series and in the Crosstalk community this fall. Yeah, absolutely. And cool. We'll see you guys soon. Thanks. Bye. It occurs twice. And so if we don't understand the word disciple, the mission statement has no meaning to us. No meaning whatsoever. And so disciple, quite frankly, in our modern context, is a very like Christianese word. It's something that you hear around the church, and so if you didn't grow up around the church, or maybe you haven't been following Jesus very long, or maybe you have, 
You might not even know what people are talking about, but it's a word that's used all the time. Well, very simply, a disciple is to follow someone. If you look it up in, like, the, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. If you look up the word for disciple, it very simply means to follow someone. Now that someone then gets kind of, it, it's different for a lot of different people, right? You can be a follower of a teacher. You can be a follower of a leader. You can be a follower of somebody in your family, all of these things. And so when we say that we exist to make disciples, to make disciples here on the campus of Texas State, what we mean by disciple is someone who is following Jesus. Somebody who is following Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has risen from the grave and he's with his 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee. And Jesus says that all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. There's our key word again. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here, Jesus, right before the moment that he ascends to heaven, gives this charge to the disciples. Now, oftentimes when people talk about this verse, they love to focus in on the go part of things. But again, if you go back to the original language, the main verb in this sentence is to make disciples. That is what Jesus is calling them to do, is to make disciples. And then what he does is he goes on to define what it means to be a disciple. And he, there are two parts to that here in the back end of this verse. The first of which is baptism. First of which is baptism. Now, baptism is a symbol. We often say that it is an external sign of an inward reality. That it's an external sign of an inward reality. And the inward reality being that we have died to our old life and we now walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. Very simply, we have said yes to Jesus. Traditionally, baptism was described as representing our adoption into the family of God. Our adoption into the family of God. Now, it's very clear that this is not what brings about our salvation. Baptism is not what brings about our salvation, but it is a public demonstration, it is a public declaration of our faith in Jesus. It is a sign for us. And this deals primarily with our standing with God, our vertical relationship with God. That we declare publicly that we have dedicated our life to him. Now, the second part of what Jesus calls them to do is to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Second piece of this is learning to obey everything that Jesus commanded us to do. Now, how do we learn to obey everything that Jesus commanded us to do? Well, really, there's kind of two ways of going about this. The first of which is the setting that we're in right now. Some guy or some gal gets up and they teach you about what Jesus said and how he called us to live. Now, the other way that we do this is we open our Bibles for ourselves and we begin to read God's word and we begin to apply it to our lives. And so either way, 
It revolves around the study of the scriptures, whether you're being taught or whether you're reading it for yourself. It all revolves around the recorded message of what Jesus said and taught and did here in his life on earth. This is the process of obeying all that Jesus has commanded us to do. And the reality is this is a lifelong process. When we get baptized, that's a once and we're done sort of deal. Now, learning to obey all that Jesus has commanded us to do is this lifelong process. And this is how we walk with God all throughout our life. And this primarily deals with our horizontal relationships. Baptism deals with our vertical relationship with God. And learning to obey all that Jesus has commanded us is horizontal because it plays out in our human relationships with other people. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me so far? Okay. So what I want to do here for a minute is I want to kind of pull back the curtain. And I want to let you guys in on why we do things a certain way here at Crosstalk. Really, there are two approaches, and we're honing in here on learning to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. And so we do that, as we said, through examining the scriptures, examining the Bible, opening it up for the first time. And so there are really two approaches in doing that, the first of which is what we would call topical. Topical. And approaching, what that means is approaching different topics, different ideas, different words, different figures, and allowing their usage in the, in the Bible to define what we believe about what that means. Right? And so if we want to define the word love, then we go look for all of the occurrences in the Bible that it says the word love. And we look at all of those, and as we read them, we get this very holistic understanding of what that word means in the scriptures. If you want to know what something means in the Bible, then you study all of the places that it occurs as a topic, as an idea, as a word, and that leads us into greater understanding. So that's topical. The other one is your vocab word for the day, and that is exegetical. It's a very fancy word that simply means that we open our Bibles and we read it, right? And so we can approach our Bibles and we can say, I have a topic, I have an idea, I have a character that I want to study, and we do that topically. But exegesis is simply reading the text and allowing it to inform what we believe and how we live. And so we try to read and extract meaning from the text. We try to apply it to how we live our lives. Now, both of these approaches have a different purpose. Exegetical develops our biblical literacy. And what I mean by biblical literacy is that we read it and understand what the scripture is telling us, right? And so the more that we read, the more that we understand, and that develops our skill of being able to read the Bible. And it's a critical skill for us. We have to be able to look into the text and ask, what is it? calling me to do? How is it calling me to live? Because if we don't develop that skill, then our relationship with God is always dependent upon somebody teaching us what the Bible says. We need to be able to look into the Bible and read it and interpret what it says to me personally. Now, topical, the way that I like to frame this is that it builds our theological tool belt. It builds our theological tool belt. When we do word studies, when we do theme studies, when we do character studies, we begin to understand why we believe what we believe. Topical study ultimately helps with the formation of our biblical worldview. 
It gives us the tools we need to, de to develop and defend what we believe as the Christian faith. Now, over the last several years, we've been really heavily exegetical in our approach here at Crosstalk. You guys might have noticed that. We just go through books of the Bible together. We just open it up, we read the text, and then we talk about what, did that, what does that say to us today? How is it calling us to live? And there's a very simple reason for that. I believe that every believer needs a working knowledge of four books, first of which is a gospel account. Could be any of the four gospel accounts. We, for example, studied the book of Luke. Now, these gospel accounts tell us the story of the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. They tell us about the free gift of eternal life that God demonstrates for us in the person of Jesus. So you need a gospel account. You need a working knowledge of the book of Acts. Now, this is the study of the early church and how it began to spread all throughout the known world. You need a knowledge of the book of Romans because this is where we really get the systematic theological understanding of our faith. It determines, it, it really doesn't determine, it lays out for us how we are to understand both our standing with God and how we walk with God throughout the rest of our life. And the fourth book that we need a working knowledge of is the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis simply is all about creation. It's all about creation, the foundation of the world. And working knowledge of these four books allows us to approach the rest of the biblical text with a broad understanding of this biblical narrative from creation all the way up to the modern church. It gives us a framework to begin to understand God's work in the world. Now, my goal has been for every person who comes to Crosstalk from the time they are a freshman to the time that they graduate will encounter all four of these books. My goal is that if you, begun, you begin coming to Crosstalk as a freshman, maybe some of you guys are freshmen, is that by the time you graduate, you will have a working knowledge of all four of these books. It's my goal. It's my purpose. It is how I believe it sets us up right as young adults to go out into the world with a biblical world view. And so we build our biblical literacy so that we can approach the scriptures for ourselves and begin to understand what they are trying to tell us and teach us about who God is and how we're called to live as a result. And we apply those truths to how we live life with one another. Now, you might have noticed that as I walked through that, that there's one book that we have not studied yet here at Crosstalk. Now, that is the book of Genesis. Now, if I'm being perfectly honest, the book of Genesis kind of scares me because it's massive. It's massive. If you guys have never read the book of Genesis, there are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, which means that we could spend your entire college career singularly talking about this one book. And it would be time well spent. It would be a worthwhile endeavor on our part. But here is kind of what I've decided to do. I want to start off this, this semester, and what we're going to do is we're just going to work through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 3. Now, Genesis, very broadly, is a book about beginnings. It's about the beginnings of the universe and the various orderings of humankind, and it's about the beginning of, uh, really, the people of Israel who framed the rest of the biblical narrative for us. Now, any of you guys who have been around the Bible for any period of time know that these first three chapters are critical for our understanding of how the world came into being and who we are as a result. 
Genesis stands at the beginning of our Bibles because creation is such a fundamental theological category for the rest of the biblical narrative. What this means is that only in relationship to creation can God's subsequent actions throughout the rest of the Bible actually be put into place. Without creation, we have nothing that anchors the rest of this narrative. The creation and the fall narrative are critical for us to look at as believers because they shape the way in which we view ourselves and God, how we view other people, and how we view the world around us, ultimately. Reading this narrative is is an exercise in self-understanding. Now, here is what I mean by that. The stories that we read in Genesis 1 to 3 become a vehicle through which we begin to understand ourselves. It's our own self-understanding understanding. So what we're going to do is we're going to approach these chapters topically. We're going to look at the text and we're going to pull out some key theological themes and we're going to focus on those during our time together each week. And by doing so, what we're doing is we're developing the tools that we need to support our own biblical worldview. In other words, they are categories for us to frame and shape all of the tools that we then put in our theological tool belt. And so what I want to do is I want to outline those for you so that you can begin to think about those throughout the coming weeks. The first one is that God created. The first thing that we see in Genesis chapters 1 to chapter 3 is that God created. Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That in the beginning, God created. Right here, the first sentence of the Bible declares that God is the one who created and ordered this world. That he is the one who sustains it. The world is not some grand cosmic accident, but it was created intentionally with a purpose by God. And what we're going to do is we'll explore this idea of what's called Ex nihilo. That God created ex nihilo. Now this is just a very fancy Latin word that means that God created out of nothing. Out of nothing. So then it builds on this and that God not only created, but God created us good. If we look in the biblical narrative, we see that God created human beings good. Actually, Genesis 1.31 says that God saw everything that he had created and he calls it very good. And he calls it very, very good. And now this stands against this pessimistic worldview that says that people are what's wrong with the world. That if we got rid of all of the people, that would fix all of our problems. What we see here is that people are, were created and were very good. And we'll explore this idea of what it means that we, in our our nature, are created inherently good. And that begins for us here in Genesis chapter 1. The third thing we see is that God created, God created us good, and that human beings are created in God's image. That human beings are created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, this is another fancy Latin concept that we'll get into, but it's the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, that this means the image of God, that human beings bear 
the image of God. At the beginnings of the world, God defined our worth so that sinful human beings wouldn't be responsible for determining the value of human life. And we'll see how this affects the the way that we think about and participate in the treatment of other human beings. This informs how we think about the life of the unborn. It informs the way we think about racial justice. It informs how we think about social justice and slavery, which, by the way, is all the more prevalent in our world today than it ever was during the antebellum slavery period in the United States. It informs how we deal and think about violent crime. It informs how we think about ideas such as capital punishment. All of these issues are Imago Day issues because it deals with the treatment of other human beings who are created in the image of God. And when we look at others as being created in the image of God, that changes the way that we understand the value of their life. From conception to death, Human beings have dignity and eminence and significance because we are made in God's image. So we see the God created. The God created us good. The God created us in his image, male and female, he created them. We see that in that same Genesis 127 passage. It's the back end of that verse, male and female, he created them. This demonstrates for us that gender was a part of God's ordering of the world. We live in a gendered reality. Biological sex in every individual is one aspect of God's design that proclaims his creativity and his imagination, and it gives us a clearer picture of his divine image that is within each and every one of us. The distinct features of each individual human being reminds us that no life is ever interchangeable, replaceable, or worthless. So we see that God created, that he created us good, that he created us in his image, male and female, he created them, but we are broken. But we're broken. And we're broken because of sin. Now, where does sin come from? Adam and Eve, the very first two human beings, were placed in a garden in Eden. And they're told that they can eat of any tree in the entire garden except for this one tree. They cannot eat of this one tree, otherwise they will surely die, is what it tells us. But they wanted to be like God. That was the issue. That was the lie that the serpent told them. That if they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, that they would surely become like God, knowing, knowing what he knows. And as a result of their choice, sin enters the world. And that is a problem that each and every one of us as human beings deal with. We all have a sin nature. Now, our sin nature is this natural tendency, this proclivity to want to do the wrong thing. It's that little guy who lives inside of you who just wants you to choose the wrong thing even though we know it's wrong. And we all experience the effects of this every day. We live in a broken world. We 
commit sin unto others. Sin is done unto us by others. And sin happens in the world around us. When we look at the news, we see that each and every day. Now, there are a lot of really, really important questions that begin to bubble up to the surface when we look at these first three chapters of Genesis. And I want to take a second to acknowledge that. That is what should be happening when we read this text. When we begin to read the Bible, we begin to ask questions about how we are to apply this to our life and how, we are to, how we're supposed to think as a result. And that is a crucial piece of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And these five theological truths really are the framework around which we begin to think about and answer those questions that begin to bubble up inside of us. So over the, next, the course of the next five weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be unpacking in further detail each of these theological truths, and we will begin to answer and ask some of those questions about how we take and apply this to our lives. These fundamental theological truths form the basis of our biblical worldview, how we see and interact with the world. But today, I just want to dwell on the story that these five truths are telling us. That God created, that he created us good, that he created us in his image, male and female, he created us, but we are broken. In this story, we see the story of a creator God who gives life, brings life to human beings which he creates in his own image. And they're given dominion over all of creation, that they're told to be fruitful and to multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And they live in this perfect fellowship with the creator God. And this is what God intended for us to experience He wanted us to experience life in this way. The problem is we decided that we wanted to be the God of our own life, that we wanted control, that we wanted to determine what was good and evil. And it broke this perfect fellowship. Now, the rest of the biblical narrative is pretty much about the effects of human disobedience and violence that we perpetuate against other human beings and God. Just going to make that very, very light, short. You guys. Over and over again, what we see is that God makes a way for us to be restored back to right relationship with Him. We see this in the law, we see it in the sacrificial system, in all of these various ways. But the reality is, we as human beings can't hold up our end of the bargain. We just can't. And what becomes clear is that human beings are in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. We are in need of of a savior, because we're never going to be able to do it on our own. I don't know about you guys, but that is the point that I got to in my own life, where I had this grand realization that I could not do it on my own. To live up to some arbitrary standard of what is good and right under my own will and my own power. And I was failing miserably at doing so, trying to earn my way back into right standing with God. That if I do all of these good things, if I say the right thing, if I go to church, if I rub like the genie's bottle the right way, that magically it's going to happen on my own. 
And the reality is I just felt broken and empty because I realized that I could never do enough or I could never be enough on my own. I don't know how many of you guys uh, have ever been a lifeguard in your life, but in order to be a lifeguard, there's this sequence of tests that you have to pass to be able to do it. To swim a certain amount of distance, is it 550, right? 550 meters. So it's a long, long way. You swim all this way, and then the next thing you have to do is you have to dive to the bottom of the deep end, and you have to grab a brick, and you have to carry it up on your chest to the surface. And then after that, they throw all the, like, the little kid rings like all throughout the pool, and in a single breath, you have to swim underwater, go get all of these rings. Now, they save the one that is truly awful for the last. So you do all of this in a single day, you're spent, and then they tell you that you have to get back in the water, and you have to tread water for two minutes, not using your hands. Hands have to be out of the water the entire time. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm a sinker. I don't float naturally, and so two minutes felt like an hour to me, and basically what it turned into was this, this controlled drowning. Like I was just progressively getting lower and lower and lower, hoping that I could run out the clock until the very end and luckily pass. That is the way that I was living my life, slowly drowning under the weight of my own effort to try to be good enough, to try to, try to do enough to earn my way back to salvation. And what I desperately needed was for somebody to come in to save me. Now that person was Jesus. That's the resolution to this somewhat kind of depressing story that we leave with our own brokenness is that years and years and years later, there's a guy who enters the picture. A man named Jesus was born, that he was a kid, that he grew up, that he experienced all of the same temptations that you and I experienced. Yet here is a crucial difference. Where you and I fall short, he did not. He was able to live the perfect life that we could never live. And it tells us that he then suffered unjustly at the hands of men and willingly gave his life on a cross for you and for me. Experiencing death only to rise three days later in newness of life. You see, this man, Jesus, was the Son of God who humbled himself to the point of being a human, fully God and fully man, and submitted himself to a death that we deserve so that we might experience a gift. Now that gift is the free gift of eternal life. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you no longer have to strive and struggle trying to be good enough or to do enough to earn your way back into right relationship with God. Jesus has already done that for you. You just have to say yes to a God who has been saying yes to you since the creation of the world. You just have to say yes to a God who has been saying yes to you since the beginning of time. So maybe you are here today and you have never said yes to Jesus. Maybe you, like I was, are currently trying to keep your head above water. You're trying to do enough and be good enough to somehow make it to the end of your life and end up on the right side of that line. And you're asking the question, what do I do? There's something stirring in your heart. What do I do? 
my answer is simply just say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. Find me. Find one of the guys in the band. Find one of the community group leaders after, the, after this and begin to ask that question. What does it mean to say yes to Jesus for the very first time? All humanity, including you and me, has a need before God that God himself has to take care of. That is the reality of our life. Now this is to recognize that we can never do it on our own. And I think in our own self-sufficient, individualistic life here in the United States, we view that as a bad thing. But our need for God is not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing. Rather, to need God and to respond to God is an opportunity to share in the richness of turning turning one's life to God. It is an admittance that our life is unmanageable, that we are out of control. It is an act of surrendering control of our life to a God who loves us and cares for us. It is only in our recognition of our need for God that we come to truly find the resolution to this story in our lives. That resolution comes when we say yes to the transforming power of Jesus. That is where we find resolution. That is where we find peace. That is where we find rest. And that is not to say that life is perfect and that nothing will ever go wrong, that everything will be hunky-dory. Jesus actually tells us that in this life we will have trouble. But to take heart because he has overcome the world. So I want to tell you that when we say yes to Jesus, we get to participate in the resolution of this story, that we now have a place in the story, and we get to be a part of seeing God's salvation brought to the world around us, into our families, into our apartments, into our dorm rooms, into our community groups, into our classrooms, and onto the campus of Texas State. So as we explore these first three chapters of the book of Genesis, this is all framed around this gift that Jesus offers us. It's a gift of something more, of resolution to our life and participation in the greatest story that's ever been told. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together to open your word, Jesus, to come into contact with your truth, And Jesus, we submit ourselves to you, God. We turn our lives over to you, Lord, so that we may experience freedom, Jesus. And so, Father, throughout these next five weeks, Lord, I pray that you begin to form us, that you begin to shape us into the people that you have called us to be, the people who more deeply know these foundational truths of reality of life with you. May it shape our perspective of of ourselves. May it shape our perspective of the way that we treat others, God. And may it shape our perspective of how we interact with the world around us. Of of, of a world filled with other human beings created in your image, Jesus. As we lift this time up to you, God, we give it to you. We surrender to you, saying, Jesus, you can have it all. We love you and